What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industries who learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 16. We're joined today by Ryan Brantley, the founder of California Sensimilia Growers Association and the California Cannabis Team. He's also the owner of Brantley Berry Farms in Watsonville, California. Ryan is a consultant and advocate for cannabis quality with a solid background in agriculture and cannabis cultivation at scale. Connect with Ryan on LinkedIn, look for a link in the notes, and enjoy the show. Ryan, welcome to the show, dude. Thanks, Rob. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey man, happy to happy to have you on and and talk shop. I think that uh, I was very intrigued when I saw that you had um, straddled the line of agriculture through strawberries and cannabis, and you know really connected some of the dots there. All right. Um, so when uh, like what should we discuss first here? The the cannabis team in California, or perhaps a little bit of your journey in founding that team. Oh, I'd love to give you a little bit of my background. So I've been growing cannabis since the year 2000, uh, which actually inspired my uh, study of agriculture. I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I had been growing cannabis for a few years, and a friend of mine said, my nickname was Bean back then, and he said, Bean, you got to go back to school. And I didn't even know you could study agriculture, really, but... He was learning what I call the ways of the Jedi, which a lot of it is canopy management and plant training so and organic practices. So I had started out growing hydroponically, and he was teaching me these ways, and the cannabis I was growing got better and better. And, but uh, my life seemed to lack a little bit of direction, besides just having you know a room full of, of cannabis. <laughs> a room full <laughs> and, of fine quality cannabis. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and my reputation was, was getting more and more uh, amongst, you know, the local population. But, um, you know, when they present what you can study in high school, they don't say, hey, you can study agriculture. I didn't even know you could, even though I'm from Southern California, surrounded by orange groves and UCR where, where bio controls that practice was, was kind of developed about 100 years ago. And so I found Cal Poly. I thought I was going to study horticulture, but looking through the coursework, I ended up settling on fruit science, which was a blend of studying viticulture, which had so many parallels with cannabis. I just absolutely loved it. And uh, pomology, which is tree fruits and nuts and and avocado and all the support courses that go along with it, like plant pathology and entomology and all that. So I just... I, I ended up having to go back to community college and work my way into Cal Poly, which I did and ended up awesome. getting, getting that degree. And then further that into a master's in crop science, looking at post-harvest strawberries. So strawberries, is, I, I call cannabis my first love in agriculture and strawberries my second love. <laughs> hey, that's very cool to hear the, hear the journey. So was it, is it really the cannabis interest that um, that pulled you there into the into agriculture again and had you considering strawberries or horticulture and things like that? A hundred percent. I've always grown cannabis you know, for, for over two decades now, which is kind of frightening. Realizing kids born back <laughs> before, after I started growing, you're now able to legally smoke in California. It's, it's, it's Times are changing quick, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when did you start cultivating cannabis? How you said in 2000, was that just out of personal interest? You know, as a consumer, you're like, Hey, I should, I should oh, try man. to create some of this. You know, or is it more the gray market days, um, moving and shaking? I thought I wanted to grow mushrooms. So initially it was kind of an economic <laughs> thing. I thought I wanted to have this, this side income and my neighbor was growing. So our friend had a dad was a river raft guide up in Humboldt and he had provided us these purple kush seeds and my neighbor was growing. And I thought I was going to do mushrooms because of this ad I saw in High Times that says you can 
harvest 10 pounds every month, which is actually <laughs> more like the wet weight. So it'd be like one tenth of that would be the final weight. <laughs> right. Um, and I thought, a lot of cakes. 60 days flower, that's too long. <laughs> this is a 21-year-old. We need some turnaround here. Us. Yeah. Right. But I mean, every single day, you know, the clock moves forward and, and 60 days is nothing, right? And, and actually, seeing his success, I finally decided, you know what? I'm going to grow cannabis instead of mushrooms because I don't, I mean, mushrooms are great, but they're not my daily sacrament. I've all, you know. Yeah, you I can was, only eat so many mushrooms so often and still have a grasp on sanity. So my nickname <laughs> was Mr. Bean because, you know, Brantley and Bean kind of flow together. But also I would get really high back then and not talk very much, which is kind of the opposite now. Kind of shut you down a little. <laughs> a little bit. I would go <laughs> introspective, which, you know, cannabis yeah. is a powerful tool for that. Totally, man. Even I lose myself in introspection. If I if it's like that first smoke of the day, I'll forget <laughs> everyone I'm standing with for a minute. <laughs> right. So that that's kind of how I got into it. And I, I just had a knack for it. Oh, yeah. Found a green thumb, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, one night I came home. I used to deliver pizza and I hadn't smoked all day. I just had a little bit of cannabis left and there was about six purple kush seeds. It was the, it was in the closet under fluorescence and there was no airflow. And I smoked and then one of the leaves just started rustling. And I was, I got scared. I was like, is this a ghost? And then another one did it. And then another one. And then all of a sudden they were all doing it in unison. And it was almost like a strobe light under the fluorescence. And I, thought then that the plants were talking to me or almost like, Hey, you know, you need to be a grower. We like you. <laughs> right. Right. They gave you their acceptance, man. <laughs> they did. It's those purple Kush, man. I think they have the intelligence, you know, it's a revered cultivar. Yeah. That was the cultivar that, that, that gave you the key to the key to the kingdom. Yes. Actually <laughs> the key to the kingdom came when I accidentally, I mean, that was the beginning. But then another friend of mine had a couple seeds from Humboldt, which I, I believe this, this was like the, one of the precursors to the purple Urkel. And he had grown this, and it was the best weed we had ever had. It was even better than the purple Kush. And I had a male <laughs> next to a fan. I had a room full of those purple Kush, and I had a oh, male man. of that next to a fan and left it a little bit too long and spread the pollen throughout the room which was actually a good mistake because a few weeks later my friend had moved out of that it was this was a fourplex where three of us buddies had three of the units and in the back was a tweaker lady so <laughs> it was party central but my buddy had moved out and moved up to the mountains and then hit the toilet at his place his place was empty the toilet burst a pipe and one day I come home and I had plastic all over the carpet floor to prevent the carpet from being ruined. Or at least I thought. Right. <laughs> all of a sudden there's water all under the carpet. And I was like, what the hell, man? So I broke in next door and found two inches of water throughout his house. I shut the toilet water off and I essentially broke down the grow. And this is in San Bernardino County where, man, we have what we call the ghetto birds. So... You know, I still yep. have PTSD whenever I hear helicopters because they had the thermal imaging devices. But uh, I looking for that, hot spots, literally. Right? right. Oh, man, that was scary. I knew that I had to break it down. So I called another buddy of mine. He let me take all the cannabis there. I essentially cleaned it up in less than 24 hours and had to call the management company. And Ooh, yeah, that's kind of a speed breakdown at that point. So the cannabis was slightly immature, but it was all, a lot of it was seeded. So I had thousands of these seeds of this. And this was before a lot of us knew the Urkel down in South. So this was early 2000s, about 2001 or two. And the hybrid that came out from the, the Purple Kush and the Urkel, which, oh, it was endless phenotypes. Everything. That's great. So it just sort of started your seed bank. Like I, I was giant just growing boon. from seed. I would sprout hundreds and hundreds of them and just grow them out without cloning them. And it was everything from grape soda and pure white buds to the most stinkiest, rankiest, 
One of my buddies, that guy that moved to the mountains, he had one that we called WD-40. It literally smelled exactly like a can of WD-40. Had that funk to it. Oh my God. It was the, <laughs> you want to talk about the gas. This was the gas. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. And it, there's something about popping seeds that way. You can discover so many different traits that if you fall onto like a cloning regime, you're just recreating your genetics, maybe drifting slightly. But when popping, you know, you can find just those one in a millions, those one in a thousands. Yes. And that is, that is actually, I'm glad I told that story because that is when I truly fell in love with cannabis because all the different smells, all the different varieties, how many things in life bring a new smell that you've never smelled before? That's not like, woo, P-U, it's something <laughs> great. And True. those new smells bring you new highs and new experiences. Yeah, you could be doing the same thing and then suddenly encounter a novel terpene, terpene percentage or cannabinoid profile or just find something completely new. I'll, I'll never forget, I think the strain that pulled me in was the Ultrasonia, and I was, I was mopping the floor in the flower rooms in a Denver grow, just doing my thing, basically, just got this whiff on the air, and had to like basically sniff it out in the, in the trays to find this flowering Ultrasonia, and from then on, I was, I was hooked. That's my favorite cultivar, and I think that uh, it really showed the, some potential of what terpenes can pack. Um, I can't explain some of those scents when you find them. It's like you want to just keep... Like you want to keep breathing in, like you're exploring the scent deeper and you just need to keep like inhaling and like, oh, maybe I can get a little bit different smell there. or There's a little different flavor. I'm looking forward to see what, what people can do with terpenes and edibles and tinctures and things like that as uh, I would take some Ultrasonia gum or, you know, like a mint or something. That'd be awesome. Right. Yes. The strain specific chocolates. I think that's something that Kiva used to do pretty well yeah, so you got involved with the the cannabis industry full on not not too long after that, and ended up with Kaliva as a director of cultivation or a senior yes. director there. How I did that transition in, really? I came, so I I I went to Cal Poly, got a degree in fruit science, and didn't want to get a master's, but ended up uh, digging up a ton of research. That was my that was my hobby reading all these white papers. So I ended up looking at novel plant essential oil compounds to prevent botrytis on strawberries. And that's what got me the job at the Strawberry Center, you know, which is a research and education center. And a couple of years in it, so that my master's professor knew that I was unhappy working under the boss there. It got to the point where I didn't even like strawberries anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> that's how bad it was working under this this big butthead narcissist dude just kind of controlling the controlling the scene a little too much so my master's professor he didn't he had never even really smoked cannabis but one of his old students so he's a post-harvest technologist and you know my master's thesis was in post-harvest so he got hired by this place called Kaliva which in 2015 was and it was 2016 I guess at that time or into 17 when they built it in 2015 and ramped it up it was the biggest indoor grow in California so one day I get a call from him after work. His name's Dr. Brown. I was like, what the hell is Brown calling me after work for? This must be something. And Think he you said, get the ax. <laughs> he says, Brian, I've been, you know, doing this cannabis consulting for these people up north. They're really big. It's professional. And what they need is post-harvest manager. And I think you would be the one. Now, I said, hell no, doctor. I didn't say that, but it was more like, heck no, Dr. Brown. Because inside, you know, as someone who loves cannabis and learned the ways of the Jedi back years ago, I always swore I would never, ever give my skills to someone who was kind of just in it for the dollar. Kind of going to the dark side. And I yeah. thought these people were, maybe they were, maybe they're not. But uh, <laughs> but I, I ended up letting him convince me to do an interview and I went up and met the CEO and the, the director of agriculture and did a tour. And, you know, they had powdery mildew. So they, I didn't know at the time, they were on the verge of going out of business. Because the powdery oh, it was mildew, a, a crucial moment for them when you joined the team. Huh? The powdery mildew was literally that bad that, you know, the buyers back in the 215 days, buyers were the biggest experts. And that's kind of transitioned into these egomaniacs now. <laughs> they won't even look at the bag. They just want to see the koa. But back then, they would inspect the bud. And if there was any powdery mildew, they would say no. 
I mean, you could even smell when you have significant powdery mildew, you can smell it. It smells a little bit sour, like botrytis rot. So oh, it can act, so, it can affect the aroma for sure when you're looking at multiple pounds versus yes. an eighth or something. If it's significant mildew, or you know, and, and if they saw any spotting, so unfortunately, Caliva was laughed out of all almost all the dispensaries in California, but they have all these big grow rooms still making all this bud. So, and they had hired all these consultants, including my former professor. They had UC Davis guys, these guys that had worked with this guy, Doug Goobler, who built the powdery mildew index. They had a new powdery mildew product. They had some orchard dude that had convinced the director not to thin the under canopy, which was a huge mistake. Yeah, so definitely. There was all this overlap. And I ran into these pathogens I had never even seen before on cannabis. We're talking penicillium. Um, uh, aspergillus where it would turn black even on the bud. Hmm. Oh God. So they had a, a unique chaos kind of brewing inside the doors there. Huh? And it was, <laughs> and I knew they wanted to get rid of the grower and I knew they wanted more from me, but they were ruining the flower and post harvest. I came in the first day and they bring me 20 to 40 pounds of this alien OG that was rotted from the inside out. They said, Ryan, what can we do with this? I said, can't do anything with this. It's destroyed. I mean, you awesome. can send it to extraction, but yeah. <laughs> what do you? I mean, this is done. So we, you know, in the first few weeks, we're refined post-harvest practice. It's funny that you say you're from Colorado because this guy that actually left before the day before I got there had helped them develop their post-harvest practices, and it was on bread racks drying on the flat, which in Colorado in the thin atmosphere, the cannabis can dry in as short as three days. But we're here, you know, close to the coast where five to seven yeah, days humidity. is the first, you know, five to seven days is more of the norm. Uh, Do you have to worry more about the uh, moisture when they're lying flat or kind of? Oh, the, the oh yeah. And if you do, if you have too big of a bud in, in the branch, it, it flattens the flower, you know, ruins the trichomes on the exterior of the bud. I mean, there's that. Yeah, I wouldn't too. advise drying or curing flat unless you just kind of have to, like for space considerations, things yes. like that. And if you do, I've seen people do it here in California and they don't grow the best flower, but they'll separate the, the bud off the branch and that seems to reduce the flattening a bit. Yeah, make sure it's... It can yeah. kind of move around a little the bit. It doesn't have they that had weight. With the branches, you know, they would have to. They would flip the buds every day. So then they had that, and then he had them defoliating the at the end, right before harvest. So one room took three days to harvest. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, these are about two thousand square foot rooms. They're pretty big for indoor. Yeah, I mean, for a while I was implementing software for these large grows. So I would come into their multi million dollar facility and help them add the software that would track their production harvests, track their costs, their watering schedules and things like that. And I definitely ran into the fleet of consultants and the kind of misinformation or conflicting information that was so prevalent there, I think in like, like early, kind of early industry days, you know, 2014 through, I mean, I think it's getting a little better now, but I mean, a lot of companies had to fall by the wayside to learn. <laughs> Yes, there are a lot of great consultants out there now, including myself. I work as a consultant now. That's not a Hey, pitch. right, right. Uh, <laughs> hey, pitch away, man. Yeah, bring in that uh, knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, uh, so Kaliva convinced you then. They, um, they teased you in the ways of the dark side, right, and brought you on the team. And <laughs> they gave they, you a big enough problem to solve, though, huh? or an interesting enough problem. Well, part, I was, I was not going to take the job at first because... I had actually worked as a trimmer as for this dispensary guy that would send the bud home. When my daughter was nine, she's on the gymnastics team, and my ex-wife didn't work, so I needed more income. And I was a great trimmer, you know, growing for so many years. You trim your own harvest. Yeah, you just get used trim to a doing lot it <laughs> really fast and make good money at that. You know, having two jobs, I come in and the trimmers had no lights over their head. Oh, I was ready to kill someone, man. <laughs> They're just the tripping in the dark. The first thing that gets yeah. tired on me is my eyes. My hands can go all, and I, because I train myself to trim with both hands, you know. The right hand gets tired, and then you start trimming. Switch over. It. It's not yeah. as fast with the left, but it's doable. Do you and like the curved, the curved trimmers, or do you like the straight ones? Originally, I like the straight, but, you know, now I like the curve better. And yeah, I still definitely. like the spring-loaded action, um, 
A lot of the professional trimmers these days use the Chica Masa. They have a really easy action. Yes. I haven't gotten used to those yet. No, I kind of cut my teeth on the spring loaded. That feels like home still to me. (laughs) Me too. So there was that. And then they called it coastal grown, which in the sealed grow rooms, I used to be a purist of the central coast ag coming, you know, going to college in San Luis Obispo on the central coast. And I'm thinking, this is not coastal grown. This is in a sealed grow room. That was just kind of cutting teeth. But it's the, a sealed I, grow room that's located coastally. <laughs> what, what I did like, and actually on the coast, indoors or, you know, in a greenhouse is almost required. So, you know, we know that now. <laughs> Unless you want to try this filled buds. But um, what I did like was that everyone was just so happy. There was this optimism that you could totally feel in the air. And yeah, that kind of green buzz, that green was, rush. So I had started there in October 2017, and it was just a couple months before legalization was coming. And I think everyone was just on that wave of optimism and excitement. Yeah, looking for what's to come around the corner and, you know, only thinking about expansion as all the laws changed. That was definitely a, an interesting time for the industry. Um, investors were all eager to, to get involved. and Oh, yes. And the culture was, was ready for it to change. And it... I think that the amount of litigation that came through legalization, the taxes and kind of other things really put a damper on some of that in the long term. But that passion is still driving a lot of the cannabis industry. I find it's one of the, the it has one of the most pa- in like kind of passionate workforces or communities behind it as like a manufacturing good or as a, a, um, a CPG that deserves connoisseurship. It's it's funny you mentioned the investors because Kaliba was essentially the ultimate dog and pony show. I mean, after the other director got fired, I essentially was like more of a tour guide than a than a cultivator. And oh, we wow. we had and that actually enabled me to learn a lot about fundraising and how business works with these cutthroat business folks from Silicon Valley. They brought in Joe Montana as an investor. Carol Bartz was on the board. This guy from Starbucks was on the board at one point. So they were um, pulling in some uh, some serious spenders and some huge some man. real budgets. Yeah. Oh man, I had been in a room with the dude that owned Five Hour Energy, and this guy. Oh my God, you want to talk about tapping into the? I don't know if it was the dark side or the light side. Whatever it is, everything to him was a thesis. He's like, oh, <laughs> and he's just pulling this information, and he had he had purchased like seven water companies and. He wanted to sell us his water tech where, you know, you reuse all the water, but then you're like buying their filters and like, mm, that's it pulls opinion. you into a different, it was, a different paradigm. It was totally a great, all this technology to help the world with have clean water, but everyone has that monthly water bill to him. It's service, yeah. you know, <laughs> service with a fee, service with a fee, the whole, our whole new industry in the U S right. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen some solutions like that in the industry already. Still getting trying to get traction for labels and other things where it's like proposing this one solution fits all as long as you buy our tags or buy our bags or pay our subscription fee. Yeah, that's kind of ev- everyone getting their cut. So, did you get involved before Metric was even in California or was Metric already working into the <laughs> medical base? Well, fortunately, I I'm glad I came on after Metric because before that at Kaliva, they used this BioTrack, which I guess was even mm. worse than any of the software we had used. We used a program called Trellis, which yes. got like sold to Snoop Dogg's uh, company or something. And, and, and then yeah, the founders owned it for a while. Yeah. And but that was like, it was barely even sufficient to even track our harvest because, you know, some like barely getting the job done. The developers kind of dropped out and, and barely kept it going but metric was metric was okay except for the the screen of death and i didn't have to do that and my managers that worked under me did most of that and there are the people on their teams so we, always good to have some compliance folks to keep the keep the red tape on we we cleaned up you know that was actually you know my background in research that was what kind of enabled us to figure out how to solve the powdery mildew you know reducing the intervals, increasing the spray coverage, using the right products and rotations. And eventually we got rid of the powdery mildew completely for years without using tissue culture. And, and with the you know, same genetics too, just better. Same IPM. Genetics, exactly. Yeah. 
Same genetic, wow. a lot of the same ones. We've, you know, through the, I was there for about four years total and so definitely cycle almost every strain <laughs> under the, under the sun, a lot of different companies. Um, we found great success. Our alien OG was smoked from San Diego all the way to Humboldt. And that was actually, so there are three things that really said, Hey, you're doing, you know, you and the team. And that was how I lead. I work for the team. I don't, and they hated the other guy. He was a dictator and he would yell at him and scream at him and fire him. But I, I work for the team and me and the team together started making great cannabis and the sales team and everyone else at Kaliva helped turn us. We were the number one brand surpassing Flocana sales in 2019. Uh, and our, that was a great accolade. And then the Z cube uh, phenotype that I selected and had to push for, um, we ended up winning a gold medal in the last, the last regular cannabis cup that High Times put on before the COVID. And oh, the last wow. one in the Bay Area. Yeah. After that, it, it took gold, huh? People's Choice Award. So this was the last one that had only celebrity judges. Yeah, we took home the gold. That was, a, and so actually, it's funny because ten years before that, I was listening to this book called The Secret on tape. I had this research job that was in Greenfield, which was north of San Luis. And I would listen to this book, The Secret, over and over again. And one thing they say is, what is your passion? Have you even asked yourself? You, ask, you need to ask yourself, what is my, and what do you want to do? And one of the things I said is, I want to win the Cannabis Cup. You know, it's every grower's dream. <laughs> so then that was one thing, you know, my dream came true. But looking back, the best success we had was having our cannabis smoked even up in Humboldt at three dispensaries and it would sell out. It would sell out in Humboldt. How great does that, does that feel seeing that product fly <laughs> off the shelves, man? <laughs> From a dusty street corner in San Jose to selling out in the Humboldt nation. I mean, that, that was when I knew, Hey, we're doing something right here. Nope. We turned the ship around. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we certainly did. And they took that momentum and, you know, I don't know how much you know about Kaliva, but they eventually went public and we were the big fish in what's called the parent company. So I mm -hmm. got to be the grower also behind selecting and presenting new strains to the influencer from the brand, Jay-Z's brand Monogram. So he... His oh, weed wow. guy had a weed guy named DeAndre. <laughs> and I got to work hand in hand with DeAndre. And DeAndre had a researcher named Ryan, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. We, you know, I know the celebrity brands don't have the best, uh, and maybe they've made a few follies. They sold four gram packages instead of eights and kind of charged uh. a premium. So it hasn't grown that much. But I will say DeAndre... He's a lifetime weed guy too. Also from the Inland, I'm from the Inland Empire and he was also from San Bernardino, which is an Inland Empire. Once, mm. once I heard that, I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I know it. Cause McDonald's and Taco Bell, a lot of big ideas come out of the Inland Empire. You know, it's just Kilo. It's 60 miles east of LA and it's just. Innovation and, and entrepreneurship. Yes. It's got that energy. You're, you know, it's a road, it's this, it's this place, you know, that's close to everywhere in SoCal where it's just, SoCal's its own country, essentially, like 30 million. People. Definitely has a feel down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm proud to be one of the original grower behind Monogram. No Definitely, matter what anyone man. says. He's, yeah. You've put quite a legacy down on it, down in soil and on the shelves by the sound <laughs> of it, man. And eventually then you saw fit to move on to other projects. I yes. don't, we don't need to dig into any negativity if you don't want to, but well, it sounds I, like I'm, Kaliva I'm not, was I'm good for a while. <laughs> well, <the thing laughs> hey, is, let us have it. <laughs> you know, when you go public, you get more corporate and, you know, even start to be Kaliva pressured was, by the board. You've got to like, you've got to perform now for the public. There was, it was a couple different things. So, you know, bringing in we so Kaliva was the big fish and we merged with this left coast ventures which had marley natural and mirayo from carlos santana and a whole slew of brands chill chocolates and then just to see how our company uh the leadership fired like 98 percent of left coast i was like and you know to be through the growth and we had a lot of growth and contractions too and let me tell you during the layoffs even though we were so su successful 
and essentially I was treated like a rock star a lot of the time, I didn't feel safe after the layoffs. I certainly Still didn't thinking feel safe. it could come your direction, huh? Or your name no. might be on the next list. Yeah. No. And and then the guy, some of the people that were left from Left Coast convinced our product team, we need more volume than Cleve is producing. We're going to start buying third-party flour and putting it under the Cleve name, which was a huge uh, no-no for me. And you wanted to be of, proud of the brand. The head of sales, of that, was, that was part of what drove him away too. So it was mm. that... And then our vi- the vision changed from, you know, instead of a, the original owner wanted a consistent product for a fair value because he would get so mad when he'd find a strain he liked, go buy the same one and it would be different in the pack. So that's yeah, what we that's delivered That's the age-old brand problem now in Canada. That's, that's what we <laughs> delivered on. And that's essentially how we created a brand and we were very successful at it. And so when they start, I mean, this was some of the red flags, but what really made me want to leave was when the vision changed saying, hey, we don't, you know, instead of doing that and being, you know, the most trusted name in cannabis, now we're going to consolidate the market and we're going to put growers out of business from the black market or gray market. Well, guess what? Started to encroach on the legacy guys. Yeah. And that's who I was. So you're going to put guys like me out of business? And totally. you know, instead of yeah. instead of building a venue where we could bring them into the umbrella and you know they could grow and be under our brands or something that would be sharing it like that, and me being from Big Ag, you know, I know that you can't consolidate any one commodity. Not even berry, not even Driscolls, and can do that with the berries. I mean, they can do really well, right? And they've been trying to do that for decades <laughs> and decades and decades. So they consolidation, do it very well. <laughs> yeah. they do it very well. But I, I knew acquisitions are always rough and vision changes like that. I can see that um, I've I've seen different acquisitions go south where they they just fire the crew like that or make big sweeping changes right away on something that they bought and it's kind of um, it makes you like like stop almost and say like did you even consider why you bought this thing like this this company was already running successfully or the people within the company were making it good enough that you bought it. So you, you definitely want to understand that before you start, um, you know, cutting things off at the knees or restricting resources. They got rid of Marley Natural because of the royalty. And I'm like, what? No. So it just became, <laughs> I mean, kind of like what we've seen across the board. It's just, it's like the morals are, or the values always have money playing in the background. But if that comes to be, if that comes to the forefront and it's not just money and profit in the background, but it's just money and profit on the main stage, that's where those decisions start, uh, start becoming questionable. I especially see in the legacy market, um, I know how heavily some families and some lifestyles have been hit as like, as the industry struck up and they can't, you know, make, make do with what they were doing in the past and to be involved in the industry and have to pay all the licensing fees and then cover your metric tags and your taxation and everything it it'll start to break the bank really quickly even for a micro grow or a little uh, mom and pop kind of operator and we're on the back end of that right now in fact the parent company is what Kaliva became Kaliva is just a brand under that now they lost big too they part of it was because they didn't a lot of it was because they didn't honor their people and and they just hire some big name cultivator and then didn't give him what he asked for. And then he gets cranky and they lost their, they lost the whole grow. Yeah. That grow is no longer growing. It's, it's, they have one room just to grow the monogram and it's so sad. They laid off all of my, I consider them all friends. They got rid right. of the entire manufacturing side and just essentially became a retail only company. Uh, yeah, so with that evolution was just um, a lot of what they used to really build their brand was kind of trimmed off as fat and excess down the road, unfortunately. It's funny because huh? now they want to merge with this Gold Flora, the parent company, and Gold Flora, oh, they have cultivation. Well, you shouldn't have lost your cultivation in the first place, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I feel like the M&A side of things is just all over the place with cannabis, Yeah, with different different uh, motivations and, and reasons to, to do that. Um, I've seen more really from the software side. When working with Akerna, oh the company bought 
they bought 365 Cannabis, Viridian Sciences, Trellis, uh, Ample Organics. They built MJ Freeway from scratch, but then they owned all of these other softwares and just kind of didn't know what to do with them. Uh, And they sold them all off in the last year. After buying them for like 40 million or more, they sold for 10 to 20 million. Just huge financial mistakes coming from acquisitions that aren't that are misunderstood. <laughs> right. Did, did you guys have any software when you were at Kaliva that was helping you to maintain um, your harvest or were you tracking and using Excel sheets and, and the we, like? We had, so one of the managers that worked under me had developed some pretty sophisticated Excel sheets. So even though we were using Trellis to do, you know, this, the side of, um, Kind of reporting to metric, that kind of thing. Reporting to metric, that was what we used this master sheet. And even when she moved on and decided that she didn't want to be in cultivation anymore or was kind of shown the door, she was a little bit abusive towards the team. Uh, (laughs) um, That we still used her sheets because she was she was one of the best operators I've ever worked with. Like hands down, she was so thorough and so smart. an incredible person for the, that. What part. kind of features or what kind of functionality then did you get out of the sheet that was uh, that that made it such a staple to the grow process? Was it the ability to forecast it was, and like and plan? There was a little bit of forecasting. The forecasting didn't work so well. Um, that was a little bit clunky, but it was the tracking of the harvest. You know, each one of the oh. rooms and the planning, the planning side. Like really understanding if you start this harvest today. It's going to be done, you know, in two months and right. so and understanding how all those are moving through your rooms. How many clones to take and when. It was just all automated. Through. I see. Wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I think <laughs> from what I've heard, a lot of propagation houses and cultivation facilities are still running on, on some legacy, like backbone like that at times, even when they have software. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to do away with a tool that works. Yeah, I tried to implement some new software. Oh God, I forget what it was called now. Um, it had on, some on the grow tracking. side. Yeah, yeah, okay. it had some of that tracking. But you know, working with the corporate company, guess who wanted to come in? The EA team wanted to have their say, and they were just sandbagging everything. Oh, it was so annoying. I just gave up. I was like, you yeah, know, I forget you guys. Then we're sticking to Excel and we're sticking to Trellis. <laughs> Dude, you've definitely worn both hats, you know, the, <laughs> the, the legacy cultivator and then stepping into the corporate world and still trying to hang on to those legacy like vibes and kind of legacy experiences is it's very difficult. It's, um, it's a, it's a noble fight. You know, we're thankful for everyone that's trying to push that agenda still, in the industry, but it's something I ran into as well on the software side where as someone that had cultivated, I would say, you know, Hey, we need to do X, Y, Z, but that would go up against a Microsoft consultant who had implemented (laughs) manufacturing software for a sticker company who would say, no, actually it doesn't work like that. And just decision after decision would fall on the wrong side of the fence. And just ultimately you'd see it going astray, man, after too long. That's that's it's good you point that out because it was, the reason we were successful was because they let me do whatever I wanted with the plant. And so okay, we grew so great anything cannabis. touching there. <laughs> so it's, you know, and this is this is part of what, you know, led me to want to leave and start the California cannabis team is a lot of growers would really over fertilize the plant to the point where it just gives you a damn headache. And what I call a distillate high or, you know, really a generic weak high. And it's really finishing the plant or preventing over fertilization, I think is key. Giving it a proper flush. And then even before the flush, wait, waiting long enough and, exactly. and diluting the, diluting the newts a little bit. Exactly. Or, and if you're uh, reaching very high levels of EC, then additional weeks of that. So And we, really waiting for it to come down, huh? Yeah. And this is one of my, another success that I like to point to is, you know, when I came in, we had a lot of legacy heads, you know, oh, it has to be organic, but what I didn't change us. To, I could have changed us to over to organic, but no, we, we build a salt based program mixed with organics 
and we were really making some of the best flour. It was really the finish, you know, and I knew this from viticulture too, because the best over-fertilized grapes make terrible wine. Hmm. The worst it's wine there is. Pulling them, and pulling strawberries them early. too. This is not just a cannabis thing. Over-fertilization destroys the flavor of all commodities. So it's a, it's a fine balance of finish and cannabis is such a high yielding crop already, but you know, all the rules and regulations, all the fees, this is what's driving people to want to have three pounds, four pounds, five pounds of light. And the most we ever yielded there was, was, you know, just under four pounds of light with some blue dream, but we did the blue dream so good. We had people in LA saying, you guys have a different blue dream cut. Let us get clones of that before you stop growing it. Cause we were going to stop growing it. Cause it would, you know, top out at about 20, 21% max THC. Yeah. Oh, the blue dream. And I'm just like, no, we, don't. we do not have blue dream, a special cut. This is the same cut everyone else is growing, but we're finishing it right. You know, yeah. and it would have a lot of color. So the grow rooms were pretty, they were pretty well equipped. So we would be able to dial back temperatures for the last two weeks. And that's what I knew from my viticulture study it, you know, it's, and just from creating those temperature, is it creating the temperature swing or just reducing the temperature overall? At well, I initially thought it was the swing, but some of the rooms we had there weren't able to do a swing. <laughs> so this is a train. Just not system. the technology enough. Well, to, they need, they wanted an additional rates. 10 grand to program our rooms. And I guess we owed them like a hundred grand for maintenance okay. and didn't want to pay them because <laughs> there's, but the train sits, so the train is this uh, AC system that does dehumidification and controls the temperature in one, one go through. So it lowers the air down below the dew point, pulls that moisture out, warms the air back up, sends it back to the room. It was very effective at keeping the room stable when it was working properly. So what we found, and I, you know, through those years of doing it, I, I think it's just cooler temperatures overall. The swing is really conducive to powdery mildew too. We know that from plant pathology. The swing, getting that is—is is that because it increases the humidity as the temperature? Changes? It may have something to do with uh, humidity on the leaves. You know, as you go from low to high daily, that's right. what we suspect. Um, but it's more about more about lowering the temperature and almost uh, emulating that fall weather, that bringing on that cooler temperatures of the traditional harvest. I would do these these bell pepper powdery mildew studies up in Hollister and then San Juan Batista. Well, San Juan Batista is a lot closer to the coast and we would hardly get any mildew there. We'd be waiting and waiting and begging the grower to leave our trial up. But in Hollister where you'd get, I mean, you still get the coastal swing, the diurnal, you get more of a diurnal flux. Oh, we would get powdery mildew beautifully. And then, you know, this is part of why I was able to help solve the issues. Cause when you're a researcher and your job is to get the disease, Solving the disease is a piece of cake. Right. You know, <laughs> you know your way around that hole very well. <laughs> That's awesome how you were able to use the, the big ag and your, your knowledge and ability to research to really uh, to drive the conversation, man, and, and come up with some real solutions. Yes, think that, yes keep going. No, I was just going to say it's, it's crazy that folks tried to solve problems without researchers like you and, and folks with your background and experience and they maybe still are nowadays. So uh, if you're out there, man, never feel, never feel like you shouldn't ask that question, right? Reach out to a consultant and, and dig into the research, man. There's so much in those white papers and, and in, the, in the collegiate research for different agriculture that can be valuable in cannabis. It's great that you mentioned that, actually, because Oregon has recently started their aspergillus testing, and I've already consulted with one grower up there. So <laughs> at Kaliva, it used to be a bakery. And had, you know, rotting roofs and eaves. So we had, to, well, there was a whole company initiative. So we, you know, they had the foresight to be some of the most well-tested and jump into co-testing early in 2018. And that was what also helped oh, wow. drive our success. But we were finding that we had aspergillus. And so, you know, various things using MERV-13 filters, you know, aspergillus can have three micron spores. So preventing the spores from going in, wow. killing the spores that are there. We, we took it from a lot of fails to having a 99.95% success rate the next year. You know, I was working with the, this lady that was the scientist in manufacturing and myself and the contractors, and we cleaned that building up and we became clean. And so anyone who 
I've seen even some grower, and some people say, oh, you have to grow in rock wool. That's baloney. You don't have to grow in rock wool. You can still grow organically. You just have to keep the rooms clean. Because what we tested, we were using this Botanicare uh, core mix with perlite, and it would come in with some aspergillus. But if you use microbes in the soil, um, we had our lab test it, and they'd find aspergillus. But once the plant gets established and it starts growing, aspergillus gets outcompeted. It's not Uh, everything else is thriving. I see. So it it's weak. So we can get rid of it with organic. I mean, we only use, and you don't have to use fungicides that are toxic. California, we can only use organic products. And I yeah. love that about California's laws. That's definitely kept it closer to the organic products and helped eliminate some of those, uh, those treatment methods or those uh, IPM strategies that might be a little more detrimental or questionably so. Yes. So if you're in Oregon and you're listening to this, do not quit growing. Do not lose hope because also, you know, we're using QPCR here too. So we can fail with just one strand of aspergillus. So it's having a good coverage early, you know, to the point of runoff, getting the dust off your leaves. It could be even pH'd water through the Canyon system that could be doing this. So you're just keeping the plants clean, keeping your space clean, keeping aspergillus out yeah is cleanliness like so if you're coming in now as the with the california cannabis team is cleanliness and the like the state of the grow kind of one of your first stops as a consultant or first problems to solve if they're pre-existing yes uh if oh so if there's any (laughs) pre-existing causes right well i mean Yeah. yeah i mean definitely definitely for indoor growing it's it's paramount, as you're aware, you know, if a pest comes in, especially an insect pest. I remember I was just blown away by how much cleaning it actually took to grow indoors. Uh, oh, man. Essentially functioning as a janitor and, oh, and a farmer and a construction worker at the same time. <laughs> let me tell you, you know who covered for the IPM team when they weren't able to do the spray after the harvest? It was yours truly. <laughs> Putting on the suit, spraying yeah. stuff. Taking the walk. <laughs> yes, sir. Did and um, did you ex- have you experimented then with more uh, organic methods of pest prevention, like ladybugs and like other oh, we, organisms we def- and things like we that? We definitely used biocontrols. Um, we had an aphid that came in in one of the first years, so we're using aphidias wasps. There's one oh, I don't remember the species of mite, but they say it controls. So we. <laughs> Like a predatory mite. Genius me. I brought in, I wanted to bring in turban poison. So we get it from this greenhouse nursery and that brought in the russet mites, which we ended up battling uh, with for years. You get um, the Durban, you also get the russet. <laughs> apparently. So that this, this group got a reputation for giving a lot of people the russet, but, um, we, it's never the know, reputation we, we you keep want it under control. And it's the russet's weird. It would be attracted to like sativas that are sweet and certain indicas. It would just, flock towards them so so having the you know host resistance it's called which is you know a strain that's resilient we found blue dream to be very not resilient and through the aspergillus testing i have a little a small thesis that i think that purple strains get aspergillus more and it could be because the chlorophyll is breaking down so botrytis and aspergillus are very weak pathogens and they thrive on plant material that's dying so that the, in that theory, the cultivars with a purple or kind of finish on it are actually more vulnerable to these they can to these be. pathogens. I and see. you you do see those browning over time in post harvest, or if they're grown in a greenhouse setting, right? You'll look at their, you'll be like, "This is runts, dude. This <laughs> looks, this is rots. <laughs> you know, this ain't no runts. You know, this looks terrible." <laughs> so. Yeah, keeping the purple strains clean is paramount, and you know it's. It, it, and that thesis may not be a hundred percent true, but we I did see a tendency of that through test, and we grew hundreds and hundreds of strains. And what are your thoughts then about the like the cure and how the industry is addressing cure, and how maybe home growers or legacy guys would would cure maybe longer or more fully. I've seen very short ones at times of just like five to 10 days or even using machines to try to drop that down. But I also am aware of the science on some of the cannabinoids 
really switching into psychoactive cannabinoids further, the more you cure. Yes. So, I mean, there, there's a whole slew of post-harvest subjects there, but I believe that when everyone says 60 and 60, they're full of it because ACs can't go below 63. So, yeah, I believe that you should cure at 63 and 60, ideally. But if you, if you think you have a risk of botrytis or aspergillus, I recommend people to dry at 68 Fahrenheit. So terpenes are what terpenes have a, they'll boil off. Low boiling point. They'll boil at temperature and they'll boil at airflow. I've seen people blowing air right onto the flower and I'm like, dude, what the hell are you doing? No, you move air. Just that movement, just that movement will pull off some of the most volatile ones. So if you, if you really were pushing it down to 60 and you have huge flowers, they're not going to dry. They're not going to start drying. And you're going to have, so that part of how I help solve the mildew problem or how you think about uh, pathogens is called the disease triangle. So you have to have favorable conditions. You have to have a virulent pathogen and you have to have a susceptible host. You take any one of those out of that triangle, disease will not occur. So if Mm -hmm. you're having, if you pack too much bud into one space, so in a post-harvest space, I'd recommend you don't fill the room more than 80% full of flour and you can have it touching a little bit at first, but in the first three days, I call it the rapid dry down. You want it to dry to the point where it's just barely not touching. That way, you know, 360 degrees of the flower has air movement around it and you're blowing surface air area. away from the flower. Yeah, that's interesting too to, to point out that, that that airflow should not be directed on your, your hard-earned crop. Don't do it. <laughs> Whoever told you that was wrong. Because terpenes will volatilize with air movement. They will, you will destroy your flowers. Uh, is, is there a favorite terpene on your side from the science or the, the, the cons- consumption perspective? From a strain point of view, I like the Skittles. So the, the Z-Cube that we won the, and the OG Kush. Oh, God. Can't go wrong with that. So the, the, the Z-Cube Fino that I selected was absolutely the perfect blend of Skittles and OG Kush. And that's why we won first place in the Cannabis Cup. And, I mean... It just brought the best of both worlds. There. And I'm not sure what... I forget what terps are... I know there's one terp that's more dominant in the OG Kush. And I like like the Sour D's and the OG Kushes. They tend to cure better for longer. They do turn brown. But they can be really, really delicious long-term cure. And, and you know, what you mentioned about the curing and, and you know, decarboxylation of the THC, I think yeah. there was one study where they found like two or three months of cure was, was kind optimal. Kind of the sweet spot, right? Or you get diminishing returns after that or almost de- degraded flower. It's funny because, you know, the over-fertilize, you know, a big part of the reason I started the cannabis team was the over-fertilization and, and the ruining of flower. But when you do it like that, you get what I call generic terps and they dissipate a lot faster. And if you look at it from a plant science perspective, if you're giving NPK, you're giving the primary nutrients, you get more primary growth, you get less secondary metabolites. So it's not that we're flushing the root zone. What we're doing is creating a slight nutrient stress. And that's actually great too for post-harvest when those leaves get, when those leaves uh, get the big fade on and they start dying away. Well, guess what? You hang it with the leaf on, and when you're bucking, those leaves fall right off. But if it's yeah, full of nutrients, they're completely milked out by that time. If it's full yeah. of nutrients, you're having to trim all the leaves off. So a lot of people that do it that way end up, you know, pulling the yeah, leaves man. off. Definitely like something to that fans. kind of creating that stress, right? The in, the terpenes themselves and the lipids of the flower are, are ultimately a like a survival mechanism for cannabis to to maintain itself in like UV heat or survive pests and everything else. Um, I didn't think about the kind of creating that nutritional stress or teasing that line to yes. push the quality envelope further. I, I love that. Yes. So I knew that from viticulture because that's what you do. You want it to have. So if you look at it from a crop steering perspective, the end of the vegetative bulking stage is about in an eight week cycle, about the end of week six. If you've done a good job as a grower and fed the plant sufficiently through that, the plant doesn't need anything else to finish. It just needs, not to, gonna, it needs maintenance. You're not going to put calcium, and a lot of growers flush with calcium, but I don't, I don't think that's necessary. I mean, I'm not, I don't know the science behind what it's not necessary, 
but I know from experience. And if you look at NorCal, um, God, I forget their name, NorCal Cannabis. Look at this dude, Ernie Pillows Grows. He's the only one I see out there that has a really good fade. And he'll get a full canopy, but his leaves will be totally faded and just falling to nothing. I can guarantee that their cannabis is good to smoke. I mean, once you grow for enough years, you can just look at, and a lot of these hype growers, oh, they're way over fertilized, man, way over fertilized. And some strains will be better, will be better than others over fertilized. Like OG Kush can kind of take a lot of feed and like need some will kind of, of thrive under it or not not be as impacted as severely. But the the in general, huh? The you want to give them only what they need and avoid those overfeeds. Yes. Absolutely. The end of vegetative bulking stage, you know, you can give carbohydrates, you can give sulfur, you can give potassium. Those aren't assimilated, but if you give nitrogen or phosphorus and you're going to push the fox tailing, you're going to, you're going to make generic turps and generic bud, you know, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants the food (laughs) factory, bud. no, 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 no. (laughs) And so are you working with clients in specifically the California region still, or are you kind of working with clients where right. they where they occur or where the where the need is at. So the the mission of the California cannabis team is very simple. Um, so we seek to connect people to the plant. And the consulting wasn't what I envisioned originally. <laughs> but you know, the market crashed right when I left the company and and things had gone slow to starting my own new farm. Um, right. so we want to connect people to the plant, but our North star is that we're going to help create more good cannabis in the world. So yes, we preach, you know, preventing over fertilization. That was one of the number one things I saw disgracing our precious flower in the industry. So yeah, I've consulted with, with farms up in Humboldt and Mendocino and helped them find great success. They had some very poor advice from PhD plant scientists. Oh, you don't, you know, no flush, you know, Oh, just all types of bad advice. And yeah, so they, it's just a like a long process to try to untangle that knot for different businesses of the different advice, different employees they've had during the growth, yes. everything. Huh? And if someone has a PhD, if you're a cannabis grower out there and you know something isn't right and someone has a PhD and they're telling it, believe yourself, believe in yourself because you're the grower. Yeah, you this, know what don't makes discredit that knowledge. Yes, PhD means nothing. PhD means FUD. And I have a master's, so I can talk on almost on those levels. <laughs> right? No, it's, it's, a, it's a good point to make, man. That experience is so valuable. And that intuition as a grower that, that you see and feel, you know, working with your plants every day and, and in your facilities. Amen, man. Awesome, Amen. Ryan. Well, thank you so much for jumping on today and, and, and diving into the details. I think there's, there's so much more we could talk about in some of the the analogs from strawberries and cannabis and big ag to cannabis industry. I think we'll definitely have to talk again down the road. And in the meantime, where can our listeners learn more about you and the the California cannabis team and maybe even try some of these Brantley berries? Well, Brantley berries is going to have a stand on highway 152 between Hollihan and staff of life, the best uh, grocery store in the world, right outside of downtown Watsonville. Find out more about the cannabis team at www.calcannabis.org. That is the future uh, Cannabis Commission website. I had the wherewithal to buy that myself when I was leaving Kaliva. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, last year we put on a show, uh, Cali Sensi Cannabis 360, where I brought together the best in the science and the best of the craft. That's where I kind of see myself helping serve younger growers. So, you know, I do consulting, but also uh, through Kaliva and through my former profession, got to mentor a lot of young growers and a lot of them are out there doing great things now and so they saw me as the perfect blend of science and the craft and so that's what we brought together last year and so we're releasing that uh, Cali Sensi Stories as a podcast form with video of some of the presenters awesome so that's that's where they can find find what the the California Cannabis team does it's all online right now (laughs) great Ryan thank you again man thank you so much man Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com.
We offer cannabis operations consulting, agile product management, and connoisseurship services. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.